Again, welcome. Glad you could join us um, this morning online. Uh, Before we get into the Lord's Word, let's uh, go to Him in prayer to ask for wisdom and discernment this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to hear your word to, as we dive into 2 John, ask that we will uh, submit ourselves before you, that you will allow the Spirit to convict us, to fill us, uh, to teach us, and to illuminate your scriptures. Help us to glean from your word the wisdom that we need to hear uh, this morning, um, and to glorify you in all that we do, Father. And we ask this, Father, for your glory and the power of the Spirit that dwells within all of us who call upon the name of your Son, and it's in the name of your Son that we ask these things. Amen. All right, so we're starting Second John today. Now, some info about it before we dive into our passage. If you want a more thorough introduction to the epistles of John, you can listen to the sermon uh, titled Rightful Fellowship, uh, which was given uh, back on January 5th. And you can find that on our website as well as on Spotify. Um, we did a more thorough in-depth introduction to uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But briefly, though, and some of this is going to be a review, uh, 2nd John was written by the Apostle John, the self-proclaimed beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, In this letter, though, John is only identified as the elder. So it is through uh, tradition, uh, it's through by the content of the letter, the, the writing style of the letter, as well as historical evidence from early church fathers ascribing this letter to the apostle and no one else. That's why we believe John the apostle to be its author. The audience of the letter is the elect lady and her children. Uh, And we will speak more exactly on who that is as we dive into our text. Uh, This letter was written most likely in the 90s of the first century AD after he wrote the gospel and probably after 1 John as well. Its theme and theological thrust is that the church ought to walk in truth, which results in us loving one another, and a key aspect of that reality is being on guard for false teachers. So let us begin Second John by looking at our passage for us today, uh, which are the first three verses that make up the greeting of the letter. So we're going to be in Second John 1 through uh, 3. So if you haven't already, uh, please go ahead and uh, turn there so you can uh, follow along, and especially during the message, you can uh, reference the passage as we go through it. Um, Any other passage outside of our main passage will be provided for you uh, on the screen or through the PowerPoint. So as you turn there, I do understand that since 2 John is only one chapter, uh, there is no listed chapter in the reference. So when we speak of 2 John 1 through 3, essentially what we're saying is 2 John verses 1 through 3. There's no need to have a 2 John 1, 1 through 3 because it's only a single chapter. So another tidbit of info, 2 John is the second shortest book of the New Testament. Um, And due to its brevity, this is why it's sometimes referred to as a postcard epistle. Uh, I know postcards aren't as popular as they used to be, but I think most of us still remember what postcards are. So let's go ahead and read uh, 2 John, verses 1 through 3. From the elder to an elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, And not I alone, but also all those who know the truth. Because of the truth that resides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So John starts the letter out by expressing his love for those that he writes this letter to. 
He mentions that he loves them, but before we speak to the manner of his love, let us first deal with the people mentioned in the first part of the first verse. The elder and the elect lady and her children. Who are they? To whom is John actually writing to? Well, well, the elder, first, as previously mentioned, is the Apostle John. But why does John use this title? John could have used apostle if he wanted to appeal to his positional authority and establish some real great credibility with them. But John uses elder, which still has a sense of authority uh, within its title, uh, but it's it's more tender, it's it's perhaps more intimate, so he's, he's not fully pressing on that position. So to whomever he write, he's writing to, they know him well enough to where he can use the title elder, um, and he doesn't have to establish credibility uh, with them in regards to the topic that he is speaking. So he's using a, an intimate term for the people he is writing to. It's the same term that he uses in Third John as well. But to whom is he writing? He speaks of the elect, or in some translations, chosen lady and her children. There are three options of who this could be. John could be writing to a, a local church, a specific church, of, of which lady refers to the church, which is not uncommon um, as a whole, and the members are the children. Or John is writing to the church universal. Perhaps he has in mind several local churches, or maybe it's just a general letter to be shared and distributed among the body of Christ. So the elect lady is the bride of Christ, and its members are the children. The third option is to take it quite literally, is that John is writing to a very specific lady that he knows. And the children could be her actual biological children, or they could be her spiritual children uh, through discipleship. Most understand this fitting between option one and option two, or a combination of both. The beauty of it is, though, that regardless of which three of these options we go with, its application is still relevant for all of us. It's still relevant for the church universal. Regardless of where we are located, regardless of the time which we live in, it still applies to all believers. So John here in verse 1 writes that he, he declares his love, his affections for those who are part of the church. And as he does, he qualifies this love. John loves with a love that is grounded in the truth. In other words, the love of John abides in truth. It resides in truth. It dwells in truth. It is anchored in truth. And this isn't uncommon for John. I think by now we we should understand this. Uh, But we also see the same thing in 3 John 1. He writes, From the elder to Gaius, my dear brother, whom I love in truth. And in 1 John 3.18, he tells, of this, tells us this, in fact, how love is to be done. He's, he writes, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. See, in John, with John's theology, love is never divor- divorced from truth. You have to have truth in order for it to be love. So for us today, we need to ask ourselves, are we loving rightly? Is our love rooted in what it ought to be rooted in? That is the truth. Or is our love rooted in something else, something false, something that is futile, empty, vain, perhaps self-serving? Maybe our love is rooted in a false construct in which we have placed our love, uh, meaning that we have put our love in an idea created by the expectations and desires of society 
rather than what is true. Let me give you an example of a false construct. Uh, To love oneself, one must be true to oneself. Or be who you want to be, or be you. In that, you will truly love yourself. But is that true, though? Is that what Scripture teaches? Or or, or take it from an aspect of, of the community. If I have a family member or a co-worker, friend, neighbor who is biologically born as one gender, yet desires to be another gender because he or she thinks that to chase those desires is to be true to oneself. Thus, by doing that, they are loving themselves in the best way that they can. So would it be loving for me to support that person in that decision to do that? No, because that's not rooted in the truth. Yes, society thinks that way, but it doesn't make it true. That is a love that abides in the darkness of this world. And essentially, since it's absence of truth, it's not true love. So just as much and as obvious as it wouldn't be loving to tell someone if their house is on fire and they're sitting in it and they're happy with it, we just don't ignore that. We, we recognize the danger and it would be unloving to stay silent on that topic. When love is abiding in truth, it allows truth to guide it, to shape it, to temper it. And when it does that, then the love will last. It's not futile. It has a purpose. It has an end. And it's everlasting. So what is this truth of which that John's love abides in? The answer, as it often is in Sunday school, is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the truth of which this love abides. Jesus is our yes, and he is our amen. Think of John 14, 6, when Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Quite often, society tries to define what truth is, right? I mean, that's Pilate's great question to Jesus. What is truth? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is truth. When we talk about the truth will set you free, society loves to take that, but they divorce truth from Jesus, and to do so is to make that truth a lie, a a false truth. Jesus Christ, he is the manifestation of the Father in the flesh. He is the word, the logos, that created all things. He is true wisdom, true wisdom in the flesh. The one who lived a life of perfect reflection of love lived out in perfect obedience to the Father, which ended in the ultimate expression of love and sacrificially suffering and dying on the cross for our sins. So when we want to know what truth is, we just look to Christ. He is the epitome of it. So to be in this truth, to know Christ, One must confess Christ as Lord and Savior. But as Jesus goes on later in John 14, one must obey Christ. For it is in keeping his commandments that the Son and the Father reveal themselves to us. We cannot know them apart from obedience to his word. And by doing so, they teach us and they show us what love is. The law of the Old Testament was hung on the two great commandments of love God with your whole being and in, in, in your whole self and love your neighbors as yourself. All the other 600 plus commandments of, of the law spoke to what that looked like, uh, specifically to Israel um, in regards to the, the place in history and the place in, in geography of where they were located um, and how that looked like uh, in their community. Therefore, to love one another in truth, for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must know and obey the commands of God. 
we must know his will. For doing his will is doing what is truly good, truly right, truly loving. So John expresses his heart for the church, as well as his acknowledgement of their faith and their obedience in Christ. But it's not just John who loves them. Look at that last part of verse 1. It's everyone who shares in this knowledge of the truth. It's not, not just I, John says, but all who in the truth love you. All who are in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love abides in truth so that truth may shape and direct our love. But truth is able to unite us as one body through this very love of which it shapes. Truth may be the framework of our love, but love is the mechanism of which truth unites the body. It is the glue, so to speak. Or perhaps the truth is like two bones at a joint that are held together uh, by love, which would be the ligaments. Without, with no love, the truth cannot articulate, cannot stay connected with the other bones. Yet without truth, the ligament, the love, it has no force. It is, it's attached to nothing, and ultimately, it is useless. This is uh, similar to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4:15 and 16. Practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. As we walk in truth while loving each other, the body will grow as it is connected to the truth, the head, which is Jesus Christ. And in these days, we have to be, especially as a church, we have to be mindful of this, particularly mindful of how we love one another in the truth. We have to be reminded that what unites us is the gospel, and it's the person and the work of Jesus Christ in love. We have to be careful not to allow divisions among us that are created as a result of disagreements on matters that are outside of this truth. Nor should we allow divisions to creep in among us because we fail to love. It is possible to embrace this truth and have no love, and we need to be cautious of that. The only division that is acceptable in the body of Christ here at Hope Community Church is the division of what is true from what is false. The division of the sheep and the goats If people, when confronted by the truth, refuse the truth, then that division is acceptable. And as we work through the letter of 2 John, we will understand more as to why we should expect that to happen and why that's okay for it to happen. But in all other matters, unity ought to happen in truth and in love. Let me speak to our current situation of the pandemic. Most, if not all of us, have our opinions about how the government has responded to this situation. We might even have opinions on why and how this pandemic began and got to where it is now. But we have to be careful not to let these differences that we have, that are opinions ultimately, and we might have strong opinions and we might believe them to be true, but we cannot allow it to be a driving force in our lives of division or animosity within the body. We are not united by what we consider to be true or or not true about the government and the pandemic. 
We are united in the truth of Christ. Yes, we can and ought to have informed opinions and discussions on these matters. And and yes, as citizens of a free country that supposedly values the liberties and rights of its citizens, we should be active and we should be responsibly engaging in the practicing of these rights. But we must not get so caught up in it that when we do, it creates division within the family, within the body of Christ. We are kingdom citizens first before we are an American citizen. We must remain grounded in the truth. In doing so, we must still love our brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree with us, either mildly or strongly disagree with us. They might think that we are off our rocker because of what we might think of the situation. But that's the beauty of the gospel, that despite of how we think the government has responded, we are still united by the truth of the gospel. Now, before I speak to how we are to do this, let me say one more thing on the pandemic. We must be careful as believers in Jesus Christ not to get caught up in the panic and the hysteria of the situation. I'm not saying it's not warranted for those who have no hope. What I am saying is this. For those of us who believe in Christ Jesus, we have no need to panic. We have no cause to become hysterical with fear. Think of Isaiah 8, 12, 13, where Yahweh spoke to Isaiah saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. This verse isn't about what is and is not conspiracy. That's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is there is something, better yet, there is someone that we are to fear and we are to dread. And if we have peace with him, then we have nothing to fear, nothing to dread. What is going on right now is all under the eternal decree of God. He is fully in control. And if we have peace with him, we have nothing to fear. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that we are to be reckless or unwise in how we live, right? We don't just take that and then go out and and put other people in harm's way. We are still called to live in love towards others. Our liberty in Christ is limited by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's Romans 14. I'll say that again. Our liberty, our freedom in Christ, what we get to do, that is limited by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let our peace and our acts of love in the midst of panic be our witness of the truth. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, how? How are we able to do this? Well, John helps us with the last verse of his greeting by reminding us of of the why and the how of it all. And it all comes from our experience of the truth and love that flows ultimately from above. He speaks of grace, mercy, and peace. Now, notice the first word there of the three key words, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace. When we think of grace, especially in light of mercy and peace, what do we mean? And what's the difference? In order for us to experience the mercy and the peace that John speaks of here, we must first experience grace. See, grace is God doing to us which we don't deserve. Okay, Grace is God doing to us which we don't deserve. Mercy is God not 
doing to us what we do deserve. Again, mercy is God not doing to us what we do deserve. And peace is knowing that neither of those things will be withheld from us once they have been given to us. So we cannot experience the mercy of God until we have experienced his grace. God did not need to reveal himself to the world, but he does. He did not need to send Moses and the prophets with his word so that we would know him. Nor did he have to send his son to reconcile us with him and to make himself known. But he did. His divine revelation is in itself an act of grace. And along with it, along with his divine revelation, mercy flows out to those who believe in him. Grace is provided to all. Mercy is received by some. Specifically, those who abide in the truth, in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is to this some, this particular group, whom the peace of God is given to. And let me speak more of this peace. The peace of God is not simply knowing that God is in control of all things and of your day. Peace is not rooted ultimately in the sovereignty of God. Yes, the sovereignty of God plays a role, but that is not the root of the peace. As in, if your day is going horrible, we don't take comfort ultimately thinking, well, God's in control. That's not the root of our peace. God being in control doesn't mean peace. It could mean calamity. It could mean a disaster for you. It could mean your day could get worse. And it could be a judgment from God. And there's no peace in that. The peace of God, the shalom of God, this idea is one of eternal security and freedom from judgment and the wrath of God. Not freedom from the sufferings and pains and chaos of this world. Rather, in that truth, the sovereignty of God becomes comforting. That his rule and authority over all things can only bring comfort to those with whom peace has been given to. So that regardless of what happens to you and I, we are his and he will be with us when we usher our last breath here and open our eyes in eternity. That's peace. Recognizing that all of this here is temporary. All this is but a mist, a vapor. It's that this life, no matter how long it feels, it is incredibly short, it is incredibly brief, but we are his. And this flows out of the truth of his grace and his mercy. And John highlights an important aspect of this for all of us. The grace, the mercy, and the peace, it doesn't come from you and I, it doesn't come from anything in this world, it comes from above. This might be a rather basic greeting in the New Testament, yet at the same time, it's very full and rich of gospel truth. We need to understand that even in these brief moments and insignificant things that we we might consider to be not that significant, what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves ultimately is fleshed out in these things. It's not just fleshed out in the big things. Our theology is fleshed out in the little things and how we interact with one another. What we believe is revealed in what we do and what we say. It's revealed in deed and truth. John tells us grace, mercy, and peace, key characteristics of our faith, 
come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So let's unpack this briefly and honestly. We could spend a a considerable amount of time on this verse, but let's pull the essentials from it. First, think of how John refers to the sources here. God the Father and Jesus Christ the Father's Son. John is explicitly making the Father and Son equal, yet he's making them distinct. And he's also saying that grace, mercy, and peace comes from both of them. Not just one of them, but from both of them. This echoes uh, the teaching of Jesus that he and the Father are one. And if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Yet the Father and the Son, they are different people but they are the same one true God. Therefore, remember the context of 2 John, it's false teaching, so this is the foundation of truth that he's laying for us. Therefore, any teaching that might set the Father against the Son, or vice versa, is a false teaching. Any theology that might set Yahweh against Jesus is a heresy. In other words, if you say the Old Testament God is different from the God of the New Testament, that is a heresy. The blessings we receive from Christ, we receive from Yahweh, the Father. This phrase here from John is foundational to our belief. We spoke in 1 John, back in chapter 4, about the need to test the spirits. And the key, and perhaps the most basic test, is is one of confessional faith. Do people confess Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Son of God, to be fully human and fully God? If not, have nothing to do with them. Don't tolerate them. Don't pity them. Have nothing to do with them. Again, here, if people want to experience grace, mercy, and peace, at the very least, they need to confess what is true about God the Father and Jesus Christ the Father's Son. This is part of why the doctrine of the Trinity is so critical to our faith and why those who deny the Trinity, for example, modalists, are not considered part of our faith. Because this is the truth that unites us. This is part of the gospel. And the gospel is not something that you can just pick and pull apart and select for parts. It's not a buffet. It's a single item. It's a single entree. And this truth is a truth that leads us to love one another. For from above, these blessings flow. When we ponder the truth of the grace given to us by God, when we ponder the mercy granted to us by God, the Father, which points us to look at the cross, where our deserved wrath is being consumed by the Father's Son in our place. And the peace that brings us, that, and the peace that brings us, knowing that we have been declared justified before the Almighty, not because of any work we have done, but purely by the work of Christ, so that we cannot boast, when we, when we reflect on the reality that Jesus Christ went to the cross, that the Father's Son went to the cross, took the wrath of the Father in our place, when we reflect on that, think of how that has made us justified in the eyes of the Father, that's when we start experiencing peace. And when we look to the cross, we, we see the grace, we see the mercy happening between the Father and the Son. And that brings us peace. And that causes us so that we cannot boast. We can't come into church with our heads held up high as if we are a blessing to the church. Because apart from Christ, 
We are not. Yes, Christ uses us. God uses us to bless others. But that's not us. That's him through us. So we don't boast. We are saved uh, by grace through faith alone, not by good works, but for his work, so that none of us can boast. So when we gather in this truth, how can we not love one another? Who are we to have been granted eternal life? Who are we to walk in peace with the great I am, the Lord of hosts, the the creator of all things, of whom you and I have rebelled against and sinned greatly against? The truth, it humbles us. And in that act, we taste the love of God. And when we taste of the love of God, when we drink of it, we are filled with the love of God. In our cup, our souls, they overflow with this truth, with this love, and pours into the lives of others. Now, maybe your cup feels empty. If it does, ask yourself this, and maybe it doesn't feel empty, but you should still ask yourself this to prevent it from running empty. Have you prayed to be filled with his spirit, to be filled with his truth, his mercy, his grace? And I'm not just saying like a flippant prayer, but have you prayed earnestly for this? Have you found yourself thirsty for his mercy, his grace, his peace, his truth? Those who are thirsty are those who walk the way that God wants them to walk. And in doing so, because they're not drinking of the things of the world, desire what is true and everlasting, And that will lead you to prayer. That will lead you to your knees to ask God, give me this living water. I need to be filled with it. Have you done what he has commanded you? Are you walking the path he has laid out for you? Or are you walking your own path? Are you in his word? And I'm not talking about reading five-minute devotionals. But are you spending time with him in his word? word. If you think you can form a marriage by spending five minutes with somebody a day, you're greatly mistaken. You give your life to that person. If you want to know God, you have to spend, you have to give your life to him. You have to be walking with him all the day through. You have to be in his word, consumed with his word, abiding in his word. His word should not depart from your mouth day or night as you meditate on it. It is God's word, which is the truth that John speaks of in these verses. If we want to know how to love, we have to be in his word. And all of it, all of God's word, speaks to the goodness of who he is. Even the Old Testament, even when you're talking about when God is sending judgment upon the nations and you hear about the slaughtering of men and women and children, all of it points to God's goodness. And all of it points, ultimately, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a life void of his word is a life void of his grace. And without the grace, there is no mercy, there is no peace. You cannot know Christ apart from his word. You cannot know the Father apart from Christ. You cannot be filled with the Spirit apart from the word. So if you can't know Christ apart from the word and you can't know the Father apart from Christ, how do we expect to know and experience the grace, mercy, and peace that John speaks of that comes from above, from the Father and from the Father's Son, Jesus? It is a life that abides in his word through submission and prayer 
that is anchored in the sure and steady truth of Jesus Christ. And those who are anchored in it will not be caught up in times of panic, hysteria, or chaos, no matter the amount of suffering that they themselves suffer. And why is that? Because those who are anchored in it, they're not alone. They have the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the triune God with them, and all the blessings that come with that relationship. But it's not just that relationship that they have, but they have a horizontal relationship. They are united with a countless number of brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a a unity that isn't restricted just to the local body. It's a unity that spans across both time and space. A unity rooted in truth, expressed in love, that bears the burdens and pains of this world. It's a unity that carries us over the threshold of death into eternity where there is no end of the blessings of God's grace, mercy, and peace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these three little verses. Your word is powerful and is mighty. Help us to stand firmly upon your word day to day in all things. If people should abandon us, Father, because of our belief in your word, help us still stand firm. Help us recognize that whatever comes our way, we are not alone. You are with us. The Spirit walks with us. Your angels minister to us. And we have the brothers and sisters, those who have gone before us, those who have suffered before us, and those who are with us in this world today, suffering for your name, for your sake. And those that will suffer to come, those who have yet to be born, Father. Help us to be powerful witnesses of this truth, especially in the time of uncertainty, of fear, anxiety. Help us to give up our anxieties, our worries and concerns to you. Help us to lean into this truth of the gospel. Help us to come to this well regularly, Father. Help us recognize it is sufficient. It is enough. We don't need anything else but this word and your body and your spirits in us. Allow people who who don't know this uh, steadiness, this surety, this, this truth, this anchor, what it means to be on a firm foundation. Not just a firm foundation that lasts a while, but one that lasts eternally. One that can withstand your judgment because of the work of your Son. Help us stand upon the rock that is your word, that is your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to study it, to desire it. Help us to taste and recognize that it is sweet, Father. Sometimes we come to your word and it doesn't taste so sweet. But even when it tastes bitter, Father, help us think of the grace that's in it, the mercy that's there, and the peace it brings. Train us, Father. Discipline us that we will, in in times of struggle and temptation, rather than turning to the ways of the world and to what the world thinks are the answers, help us turn to you. Help us learn and to discipline and to put into practice what you want us to do and help us to be self-controlled and to take every thought captive and make it obedient to your ways. Let your vision be our visions. Help us see what you want us to see in all matters. Help us speak with wisdom and grace to one another patience and humility, especially when we get into the matters of the pandemic on whether what the government's doing is right or wrong. Help us recognize the government is fallible. They're not infallible. Help us recognize that we ourselves are fallible, but your word is not. 
Your word is invaluable. Your word is inerrant. It is fully authoritative and it is fully sufficient. So help us submit ourselves to it. Help us be united on and over your word in that truth and in love. Help us learn what it means to love one another in that way, Father. Help us to be the witness that you want us to be here in West Salem. Be with our leaders here in the county, in the state, and in this country, Father, as they navigate difficult times with high tensions and all kinds of worries among the population. Father, just be with our leaders. Reveal yourself to them. Allow this to be an opportunity of revival if you so desire, Father. But I do know that you will use this for your glory. And however you do that, Father, allow us here at Hope to be an instrument of your hands for that purpose. Be with those who are at home with their families, Father. Help parents uh, be calm uh, and help alleviate the stress, perhaps from working from home or uh, dealing with the kids at home all the time uh, with the additional duty of, of the schooling. Grant them peace and calmness. Help them start their day with the word. Use this as an opportunity for family discipleship to happen and spring up, Father, and that we can have a revival in our homes, that families would be united and that they will be made stronger, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but because of your word and as they dive into your truth as a family. Help us reach out to one another and equip one another and to call one another and to pray for one another. Make needs known, Father. Help us bless those in need during this time those who are mourning, those who are especially struggling, Father, calm them. Remind them of your grace. Strengthen them this day. Be with them this week. Be with all of us this week. Help us be patient in all things. Help us be gracious and thankful in all things, Father. We ask these things, Father, not for our own well-being, but ultimately for your glory, which which we know if we abide in your will, is good for us. Help us to know that. Now, Father, as we ask that, Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.